Hi, I'm Matt Kirkegaard, editor of Australian Brews News, and thanks to your malt mates at Cryer Malt, this is Beer is a Conversation. Beer is a Conversation is our weekly sit-down with some of the people who make the beer industry the interesting and dynamic industry it is. And through these conversations, we dig a little deeper into the stories behind the business of beer and brewing. And this week's conversation is a deeper dive on steroids as we chat with Stone and Wood's Jamie Cook. Jamie is no stranger to Radio Brews News, if just as the namesake for the Cook Limit. But more importantly, he has been a frequent guest through his roles as a founder of Stone and Wood and of the Craft Beer Industry Association, and now as chair of the Independent Brewers Association Board. For all of those conversations, we haven't talked much about Jamie himself. Last week, Jamie turned 60. And this week, he has issued a statement saying that many years ago, he made a promise to himself that he would use that milestone to reset his priorities to give more time to himself, his family and adventure whilst winding back from day-to-day working life. As such, he has announced that he will be stepping back from his role as CEO of Fermentum, the overarching business behind Stone & Wood, retiring to the role of chair of the Fermentum board in December this year. Jamie has had a long history in the brewing industry, and his career has spanned some of the most interesting periods of Australian brewing, before he even co-founded Stone & Wood. Jamie has a long history in the brewing industry, and his career has spanned some of the most interesting periods of Australian brewing, before he even co-founded Stone & Wood. If you are fascinated by brewing history and the evolution of the current craft beer revival, or if you are a student of the business of brewing, this is a fascinating conversation with one of the giants of the Australian industry. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did having it. Jamie Cook, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Oh, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Right, thank you for, for joining us. Uh, big news uh, came out through an email from you today. Um, we, we've spoken to you about a, a lot of things uh, over the years of uh, Radio Brews News and Beer is a Conversation, but this is probably the first time I get to say that we're speaking to you about you calling the Cook Limit. <laughs> That's right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, no, um, self-inflicted limit. Um, so, <laughs> You've reached a cook limit yourself. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, look, um, I've uh, I've had a great career in beer, and um, many years ago, I promised myself that when I when I hit the big uh, sixty milestone, that I would uh, I would step back and uh, spend more time with family, uh, myself, and uh, and do a lot more travel uh, and venture, etc. So. Um, yeah, it's um it was a tough it was a tough decision to make, uh, but um but it's been many years coming, so I'm well prepared for it. Well, first of all, congratulations on on the, the birthday milestone. As I said, I, I I knew it was your birthday recently. I didn't realise it was such a big year, and uh, also congratulations on reaching the point where you can step back a little bit from stone and wood and uh, fermentum. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's been it's been a number of years coming, so we've you know, been we've been well planned and well prepared for it. So um. Yeah, no, leaving it in good hands. So it's um it's a great opportunity for me to actually, yeah, step back and enjoy the fruits of uh, what we've created. Well, we we might now we'll, we'll come to the announcement of what it means and uh, how Ben Summons is taking over. But we might sort of take a uh, step into the way back machine and just talk a little bit about 
you know, uh, how you came to be in the beer industry in the first place, because it wasn't your first career option, was it? Oh, no. No, no. I um, I mean, I started my sort of full-time career after lots of, you know, one-off jobs through my youth, but um, uh, in refrigeration, actually, and um, and worked in the refrigeration side of things in Brisbane for a number of years um, before heading off overseas. And, um, and then, yes, yeah, sort of found myself working in the pub game in the UK and uh, getting into beer that way. So, yeah, it was very much a um, sort of a backdoor into beer through the refrigeration side of things, actually. Um, but uh, enjoyed the years in the UK um, running pubs and, and training uh, pub managers up in the art of uh, beer bar operations, but also importantly, beer cellar work and you know, looking after real ales, etc. And that's where I sort of got the bug, I guess, um, for beer uh, over in the UK. Going into refrigeration, was that just something that you happened into, or was that your initial plan to to go into the trades? Uh, oh, my dad. My dad was a sparky, and um, I mean, his advice his advice as I was growing up was, you know, um, getting a trade under your belt um, is is a, is a great thing to do. It's you know, it, it gives you it gives you something to fall back on if if you ever need to, and um, and yeah, I wasn't I wasn't one for heading off to university. That wasn't that wasn't in my makeup. Um, and yeah, so so I just jumped into a trade um, and and loved it and loved it really a lot. But um, it's it sort of refrigeration is a funny thing. It's sort of a combination of building things, you know, building actually refrigeration gear from scratch, and making something, you know, not making a colder and cold <laughs> uh, creation creation, I guess. Um, but also a lot of problem solving and fault finding, which, which I guess, uh, which sort of is in the, I guess the background of my mind. Um, yeah, so so it sort of it set me up in the right on the right on the right path, but um, but yeah, moving into moving into beer um, just seemed just seemed natural once once I once I discovered pubs and how good how the fun of working in pubs. That that surprises me a little bit to hear you say that you hadn't intended to go, you know, to, to uni. That was never a part of your makeup, um, and and I don't mean to sort of blow anything anywhere it shouldn't be blown, but you know you you you're one of the smarter guys I know, and it wouldn't have surprised me if you had have uh, seen yourself as a career, you know, at least starting in academia um, to to get into a a, you know, a a profession. Yeah, I mean, formal education's just not my thing, though. I guess, um, yeah, uh, sitting in sitting in classrooms listening to professors or tutors waffling on doesn't really doesn't really appeal to me i'm more of a sort of learn as you go learn on the learn on the run sort of a guy i guess so um so yeah i've sort of um i've attacked everything i've done in my career with lots of curiosity um and and yeah making sure i learned everything as i want and sucked up sucked other people's minds along the way i guess in terms of pulling wisdom and knowledge out of others um I'll come back to that, but uh, you, so so you did what a lot of uh, young Australians do and headed overseas and ended up in the UK. Had it was it just working, you know, pouring beers in pubs, or was there a little bit more to it than that? Uh, it started off just pulling beers, yeah, um, and you know just having having fun. Uh, but um, but uh, after a while, I, I moved into a role where. Um, I was running a pub with with another Aussie over there, and we were part of the Bass Charrington group of pubs um, back in the early '80s. And um, it was it was a training house basically. So we would have couples come out of uh, after intensive courses at the brewery to uh, to be able to go and go away and run their own pubs. They would come to us for seven weeks, and we would we would take them through the practical side of running a pub. Um, and and as part of that, 
I went off to the brewery to to really get well trained in terms of looking after looking after the beer seller so that these trainee managers as they come through I could I could pass that knowledge on to them. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of where I got where I got the bug, I guess. Was that a job that the refrigeration background, as you said, you know, there's a little bit of learning, but then a little bit of hands-on, uh, really sort of helped out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, obviously the um, the technical side of of the beer sellers, etc., was was pretty easy to me for me to pick up. Um, not a lot of refrigeration involved in uh, beer sellers in the UK <laughs> back then, though. <laughs> um, but a little bit. Um, but yeah, so yeah, no, I think I think the, the whole idea of of stillaging cask ale and and looking after that and making trying to get that beer at its best um, at the right time of the week um, for the for for the trade was 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 a was a real challenge and that's something that I really enjoyed. You know, basically dealing with a living beast um, being delivered uh, that you have to then sort of finish off almost uh, the last part of the process in condition in the cellar and yeah, it's um and you know back then there was it was only uh, I guess real ale was sort of still still quite strong but um, not as prolific in terms of the number of brands around so therefore the throughput around the you know the, the volume of the beers you did have on hand pump were, were were easy to manage. To this point, the, the the story has more than a few parallels with another young Australian who landed in London, uh, working in pubs, and uh, eventually started a brewery. Did, your story doesn't involve a uh, a sleeping in after a heavy night and missing a flight, does it? <laughs> no, 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 Jasper. Uh... Yeah, no, no, he's he's a lot. He's probably celebrating a different milestone to me, <laughs> a, lot, <laughs> a lot smaller number. <laughs> no, but I was just wondering whether there was another parallel there because. Uh, <laughs> so, how long were you in the UK working in pubs? Uh, probably about four years, five, four or five years, and and that's where I met Anne, my wife. So that's sort of you know um, that was probably another key factor in me staying there for as long as I did. Um, so so yeah, no, that was um, it was a it was it was a good time. So you returned to Australia? Uh, yeah, via via the US. Had a little stint in the US, um, working for the Australian Embassy actually uh, in D- in Washington DC for for nearly two years. Um, <laughs> how, how do you go from working in uh, the, the cellar of a pub to working in the Australian Embassy? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a weird one, but um, yeah, the Australian Australian government over there has about six, was at the time about six or seven properties, and um, I was I was sort of looking after the the engineering sort of maintenance side of those properties. Um, so yeah, it was it was a funny way to uh, get into the US, but it basically you got around the green card thing beautifully and uh, earned tax free dollars at the same time. So um, had a lot of fun. Played rugby over there for a couple of years, and um, yeah, it really enjoyed that. So yeah, so after that, a couple of years, we um, we came back to Australia. Uh, got married and came back to Australia, and. Um, Jumped into the refrigeration game for a little while, but then, but very quickly ended up um, at Castlemaine Perkins, as it was then, um, in their sort of customer service, sort of beer dispense side of things, if you like. Um, yeah, so so I sort of quickly found my way into into the brewing business back here. I'm just quickly doing the mental calculations, and would that have been during the bond period? <laughs> just before, just before, just before. So yeah, I had the 
I had the great joy of being driving around. We used to call on country pubs all over Queensland, what have you, check, checking on beer quality. And uh, I remember having many conversations with publicans out in Western Queensland, telling me that Forex was no longer brewed in Milton, but it was uh, it was brewed in Western Australia because they changed the address on the on the label. And yeah, yeah, that was that was a fun time. Well, uh, well, Bondi rode into town. <laughs> That that didn't destroy your uh, love of beer. No, no, no. That was um, that was that was a there was some um really good years in terms of understanding you know the the, the interconnection between beer systems and sales and marketing um and and yeah I think I think the the business the business at that time was going through a bit of change morphing to bond brewing but um there were some good old hands there um Bill Taylor. Um, was my boss's boss at the time, um, so yeah, there's some there was some there was some good beer knowledge in that in that business that um, you know they had their fundamentals pretty well entrenched. How long were you with Lion for? Um, well, well, back then it wasn't even Lion; it was okay. It was Bond Brewing. Bond Brewing, sorry, yeah. Slowly, but yeah, slowly. But, well, it was Castlemaine Perkins, and then it, then we merged with Tui's, um, and then and then Bondi bought, uh, having already bought Swan, bought. Tui's, uh, Castlemaine Tui's, as it was called then. Um, so, yeah, that's when he joined those three businesses together. I was there from 85 to um, 89. Um, and then in 89, um, I wrote to the boys over in WA who had started Matilda Bay. So Phil Sexton, um, Howard Cairns, etc., and... Um, said, look, you know, I really like the, the whole pub brewery thing. I saw the Bruce's breweries uh, in the, when I was in the UK. The, David Bruce had the you know, the Fox and Firkin and those sorts of things, pub breweries in, in London, which really got me interested in sort of doing something a little bit different in beer. I thought that was really fascinating when I was there. So um, I wrote off to the Matilda Bay guy. I said, hey, look, you know, this is what I do. This is what I have been doing over the years. Um, if you ever need someone like me, let me know. And um, a few months later, I got a call out of the blue from Howard Cairns to say, yep, We'd love to have you over here. So um, I packed the family up and we actually drove from Brisbane to Perth. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can say this because we've established uh, you've just passed an important birthday milestone, but in those days it would have been genuinely writing rather than emailing or texting or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah, I remember actually typing the letter on a um, pretty crappy old typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it, it was... Um, yeah, I mean that was uh, '89. So yeah, so so uh, arrived in arrived in Perth at Matilda Bay, and um, what an exciting time in that business! It was it was it was going from strength to strength. Um, had just opened the new the brewery in North Fremantle at the time. Um, had the little brewery at the Sale and Anchor still going, um, and yeah, so so I, I joined the team looking after the looking after basically selling the draft beer. Um, the package beer was being sold through Elders Wine and Spirits at the time, so I was pretty much managing the draft beer side of things from the sales and technical service viewpoint, etc. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, I ended up I ended up having sort of broader responsibility across the hotels because we had about oh, seven or eight hotels still in Perth at that stage, um, looking after beer quality and and running and actually the the brewer at the sale and anchor reported to me at that time. Um, and then, um, and then another couple of years after that, CUB um, rolled into town uh, and bought the business. So um, I ended up sort of 
funnily enough, going from what was the old Lion business, what was sort of the precursor to Lion, I guess, um, across to CUB uh, through the back door, basically, via, <laughs> via Matilda Bay. Um, CUB took an interest in 89, if I remember correctly, but fully... Uh, well, it was, well, it was a public company uh, in 89. By 89, I think it was a public company. So but actually, both big brewers had, a, had an interest in it, um, funnily enough. Both Swan and CUB had small shareholdings in it. It was a funny sort of shareholding structure. But yeah, but they moved on at um, 91, I think. Um, so so yeah, I ended up staying there and um, as the as the CUB guys rode into town um, and I ended up staying there, ended up uh, running the on-premise side of sales over there for CUB and, and then market, then a marketing role. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean the, the first... The first couple of years there was, well, I think that was my MBA, um, the immersion in that business and the things we were doing back then um, and the speed we were doing them. Um, yeah, I think I think I remember Phil Sexton saying, you know, we've, we're probably only not even ten years old. We've probably made the mistakes of, of a hundred-year-old business. So you're learning you're learning a lot. <laughs> so, so what what sort of mistakes um, were you learning at the time? Oh, you know, they tried all sorts of things. You know, um, they would they would open a bar and and try and um, do something a bit different in terms of the offer, um, whether it be the beer offer or the food offer, and um, you know, very quickly work out it's not working. So that we used to call it bungee jumping. So that you know, we do three, you know, one eighty and head back to a different direction. Um, tried a few different things from a beer perspective. You know. Um, you know, we had seasonal beers out there in swing top bottles for a while and then worked out that we weren't making any money out of it. So um, <laughs> we pulled out of that. Um, there was a whole bunch of things, yeah, we, we did differently. I think one, one I, think I remember one uh, day uh, Janice McDonald came up and said, oh, sorry, I, I think I've brewed way too much beer than I need. She brewed a batch of iron brew, which is which was our 8% or 9% barley wine. Um <laughs> By mistake, she'd, she'd brewed way too much of it. So then we had to put together a promotion across the pubs to actually try and sell pints of 9% <laughs> barley wine. Um, that was that was probably probably wouldn't get away with that these days. But, um, yeah, little things like that. It, 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 it's funny to hear you talk about you know, making mistakes, you know, making 100 years mistakes in 10 years, uh, bungee jumping. <laughs> there, there's... On, on online these days, there's a lot of budding entrepreneurs that talk about move fast and break things, or you know, uh, fail, you know, fail quickly, which are just different names for things that businesses have been doing for a long time. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think I think so. Um, I mean, somebody said once to me, you know, um, the thing about entrepreneurs is they they start off by making a promise to somebody, um, and then have to go and work out how the hell they're going to fulfil that promise. Whether that promise is their family, a customer, or um, a partner in something, um, yeah. So, so you tend to have to do whatever it takes. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, you you, you move pretty quick. Um, and and I guess the great thing in most entrepreneurial businesses is you have a you have the ability to manage a broad scope of things. So you you're responsible for the delivery, but also the production or whatever side of of, of the business. So you can get things happening pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, so yeah, no, it's it's. I think that's just the nature of small business. You worked with a pretty incredible team there. Um, I mean, it, it sounds like uh, the the founders of Matilda Bay learned a lot from that period, and 
it sounds like they applied a lot of that when they started Little Creatures. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think, um, uh, I mean, the likes of the likes of uh, Phil Sexton, Howard Chance, Dick Tromboli, um, those those three guys themselves, apart from being functional experts in their in their fields, Phil from a brewing perspective, or Howard from a marketing perspective, or Nick from a finance sort of commercial perspective, they all they all shared a really good understanding of what makes uh, beer tick. And back in the day, it was specialty beer um, that we used to call it. But um, I, I think the the notion of not just crafting a beer, but also having an idea, uh, you know, a branded a brand idea and story that matches that beer, um, and and how to talk about it, the language you talk about, how to enthuse uh, the team and the staff and your customers uh, and your drinkers around it. I think it's a sort of, I don't know. There's, there's no, there's no. You don't you don't get that stuff out of textbooks. Um, there's no marketing textbook. There's probably bits and pieces, but um, but yeah, having that deep understanding of beer culture and how it evolves and how it engages with its various stakeholders, I think, is something those guys really understood. And that's probably, you know, as I said back going back before, that was probably my MBA in that in that sort of area, I guess. How frustrating was it for you? Or maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit because, as we've discussed, CUB um, took over in about '92. Um, and you were still with the brewery for another, with, with Matilda Bay, or at least uh, various roles through CUB for the next uh, 20-odd years. Um, what was that period like? Yeah, really interesting. Um, I mean, CUB, CUB back in the early 90s was was a far different beast to what it is today. Um, and, you know, I think the business itself was going through some near-death experiences corporately, but um, I, I wasn't exposed to a lot of that. But, you know, that was sort of pre to sort of Elliot or around about the same sort of John Elliot era. Um, but, you know, it was very much a, a, a conglomeration of state-based businesses, really, CUB, even though they were all selling national brands, uh, the same brand. It was, it was quite... Um, uh, decentralised, I guess, um, particularly from a sales and marketing perspective. Production, I think, um, was very much still focused. The technical epicenter was in Melbourne, but but sales and marketing was quite was quite decentralised and and therefore quite dysfunctional from a marketing perspective. Um, there were brands being managed in all different directions um, with no real national sort of oversight. Um, so I guess one of the things that I got out of uh, moving into CUB and and particularly the marketing area was understanding that whole dynamic, but how you manage brands at a local level um, and still you know keep them consistent nationally, uh, and that sort of discipline we roll it we roll through the marketing group. And at the time, I think marketing there was like about six people in the marketing team uh, at CUB uh, in Melbourne, um, a, f- a few people based around the country doing things in marketing. But by the time I left, I think the marketing group was, I think it was over 70 when I left <laughs> in 2006. Um, so, so, so yeah, it certainly sort of became a bigger piece of the, of the business. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of what I got introduced to, um, back in the West. Um, and then I, managed to organise a transfer back to Brisbane. My dad wasn't well, so we, we moved the family back to Brisbane to work at CUB in, in Brisbane, um, looking after Queensland Northern Territory marketing um, and reporting to the guy, the marketing group in Melbourne. 
Um, and yeah, that was that was uh, that was a, a great time because um, Queensland, you know, there was some there was some wild and woolly things going on in CB and probably in beer in general back in the late nineties. Um, probably remember it, it was the era of thirty can packs of mid strength beer being bashed around the marketplace, mm-hmm. uh, and then launches of things like Carlton Mid and uh, various other brands. But um, ice uh, was. Yeah, Carlton Cold. Carlton Cold probably happened a bit earlier, and that was probably three or four years earlier. Um, but that was interesting. Yeah, when Carlton and CB launched that product and couldn't keep up with it, uh, the the demand for that beer, um, and we didn't actually get it in Western Australia until um, a couple of years later, when um, when I think they put another two or three um, production facilities in coal filtration systems. Um, so they they actually stuck to their guns and produced produced that beer with coal filtration. Uh, spent a lot of capital and and waited a long time to actually get the gear in to do it. Um, and then I think um, uh, the company that's now Lion launched Hard Ice and pretty much just you know I think it was more more marketing spend than anything in there. But uh, got the jump on on CUB in some markets where they didn't have the product to supply. So uh, but yeah, that was a, that was another little interesting exercise, I guess. Um, but yeah, but interestingly, when I moved to Brisbane, um, not long after that, uh, is where I met Brad Rogers. Um, and Brad, uh, was at that time looking after the Sanctuary Cove Brewery, uh, for CUB down, down just north of the Gold Coast. And so what year would that have been? Uh, that would have been, I think, I think we met, we worked this out the other day. I think it would have been 1998. Um, so Brad had just got back from Fiji, um, running the brewery over there for CUB and they, um, and they gave him the role up at Sanctuary Cove. It was a little brewery they'd leased up there. Uh, funnily enough, the CEO and the MD at CUB at the time both had houses at Sanctuary Cove, so somehow CUB ended up with the lease of that brewery. <laughs> um, that was the and, old, because uh, it was a Sanctuary Cove brewery that was uh, you know, created when Mike Gore built Sanctuary Cove. It was uh, one of the oh, early... Oh, that's right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and you, and you may remember the opening weekend, the opening week celebration they had. Of, uh, yeah, and the beer and the and the brewery wasn't able to actually produce the beer. They had issues with the brewery, so the, I think Coopers ended up selling beer to the for, <laughs> for the weekend. Uh, but yeah, so I, I don't think the brewery ever really got off the ground, and therefore somehow CUB ended up with it. So Brad, so Brad was uh, went in there um, running that. Um, and you know had things like cane toad lager and other bits and pieces floating around um but he but he but he was certainly sort of sorting the beers out, but the marketing probably needed a bit of work, and that's where sort of we got together and um rebranded that brewery to uh masthead brewing co um and beers like bohemian Pilsner bees knees alpha pale ale et cetera um we rolled them out and um I think that I think um, I think it won the AIBA small brewery sort of two years out of three um, in that in that period. Um, the beers oh, were. I'm banging. surprised there was an AIBA small brewery category back in those days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think there was. I think there was. Um, it was pretty early days in the in the AIBAs, but um, so. So yeah, that was that was where Brad and I sort of got together, and you know, working through the rebranding of that business and and the beer portfolio, etc. Um, yeah, we spent a, we spent a good couple of years doing that. Um, got to travel the west coast of the US as sort of a bit of research in doing it as well, uh, which was fantastic. Um, 
and then uh, Brad got sent to Sydney, and I got dragged to um, I got dragged to Melbourne. I think there's my fingernail claw mark <laughs> are still down are still down the runway of the Brisbane airport, being dragged to, to Melbourne. But it's one of those things when you work for CUB, you know, gravitational force. You eventually end up down there. Um, so so yeah, we moved we moved down to Melbourne, um, and I had a sort of national marketing role at the time. Um, looking after things like sponsorship and marketing activation nationally and merchandise and all that sort of stuff. So, so yeah, that was that was that was another exciting couple of years. I remember speaking to Brad at one stage. You mentioned Alpha Pale Ale, and uh, I, there's the concept that the little creatures Pale Ale was the first Australian interpretation of an American style pale ale but Brad swears that he'd been tinkering, tinkering with uh, Alpha uh, in, in the year or so before Little Creatures came about uh, yeah well it's probably similar sort of timing yeah I mean, he was playing around with hops yeah all sorts of things um, yeah I don't know I don't know I can't uh, I think it would have been about the same time so what, Creatures came on the scene in 2000 yeah uh, 2000 that's right yeah 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 so it, it would have been around about the same time in fact, I remember going to a, um, I remember going to the early forms of the Craft Brewers Conference in the US in the year 2000 in Milwaukee, I think it was, um, and actually Nick and Howard and Phil um, were all there, um, obviously gearing up for for the launch of Little Creatures. Um, yeah, and yeah, so yeah, it would have been around about the same time, I think. So. You took a national marketing role. Were you still involved in working at Matilda Bay during that period, or was were you sort of in a higher level role? No, well, the Matilda Bay, um, obviously, after CUB bought it back in the early nineties, um, they, they you know pretty much CUB sort of rolled their mainstream brands out in Western Australia. There was a there was a regional brand called Matilda Bay Bitter that we launched uh, in that era that was very successful. It went from nowhere to eight percent of the state market in about eight months um and that sort of that sort of gave uh cub a bit of a platform to really grow things like vb etc over in western australia um but the specialty brands um after i left wa sort of basically got sat, sat on the shelf going nowhere really um throughout the early sort of mid i guess mid to late 90s um those brands sort of we just sat there really. I remember Redback just trundling along um, without any brand manager or anyone responsible for it. Um, so when I moved to uh, Melbourne in the early 2000s, um, there was still no real uh, interest in specialty beer uh, within the CUB at the time. Um, and uh, it wasn't probably until, I don't know, 2002, something like that, 2003 maybe uh, that all of a sudden uh, Squires which really started to get James Squires which started to get serious in about 2000 I guess as well um, and Little Creatures both started to grow quite strongly and all of a sudden uh, it got the attention of CUB We would like to thank Rallings Labels Stickers and Packaging for sponsoring this edition of Beer is a Conversation If you are looking for a more efficient way to package your small run, collaboration or special release beers, make sure you have your own conversation with the guys from Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging. They specialise in supplying ready-to-fill, shrink-sleeved cans or bottles to the craft beer industry. 
They take care of everything for you and take the pain out of packaging your special brews. If you would prefer a label or sticker on your cans or bottles, Rallings can help with this as well. Just give Paul or Brad a call on 1300 852 235 to discuss how they can help you. If you can't stop to write down that number right now, it's in the show notes with a link to their website. Being inside CUB for the period that they took over uh, Matilda Bay to 10 years later in 2002, what was the thinking in taking it over in the first place if they really didn't know what to do with it? Oh, it was, it was purely the production facility um, that they were after. Um, they wanted the ability to brew beer in Western Australia um, and uh, that, gave them, that, that gave them the platform. It was almost a bit of a um, Trojan horse type acquisition, really. Um, so they, they bought the production facility, scaled it up, um, and as I say, launched that mainstream beer brand. Um, uh, it was a mid-strength beer called Matilda Bay Bitter um, that went very well. And then they launched, it just happened to coincide with the timing of VB going on tap nationally uh, back at that time. Um, and obviously up the sales force a bit and... Um, yeah, so so it was really it was really buying that production facility is what they were after. They they weren't really interested in the brands, apart from leveraging the equity that Matilda Bay had in the WA in that sort of mainstream play. It, it's interesting because uh, Redback, which was another of the beers you mentioned, that's the beer I credit with, you know, creating an interest in beer for me, and it was in the eighty eight. Uh, 89 period just after Brisbane had Expo um, that it was available over here with the excise strip over the top of the the, the, the bottle and it was the first time I'd had a beer that tasted different from all of the lagers that I'd uh, been drinking not for very long at that stage um, and, and it, w- it was so far ahead of its time in a lot of ways but then it just disappeared. Yeah, look, I think, I think um, if you think back to that sort of... Uh I guess late eighties um, specialty beer boom. They were they were mostly classical, classic European style beers that were sort of, um, you know, typically um, either pilsner style lagers, um, German wheat beers, uh, dunkel lagers, um, English ales. Yeah, yeah, Miles. yeah. A few English ales. Yeah, nothing, nothing really strong in it. But, but yeah, it was it was very much a European led sort of style thing because obviously the US was still quite in its infancy in terms of you know it was still probably locked more in that English ale sort of space back then. So yeah, things like Redback, um, you know, it was it was it, was, it, it certainly got out of the blocks pretty quickly. I think it was probably the first nationally marketed um, specialty beer, if you like. Good, good branding. Um, you know, quintessentially Australian sort of vibe to it, um, based on the wheat, on the wheat fields um, and acres of beer. If you can remember those posters from way back then. Um, I don't remember the posters. I remember the <laughs> bottle, and it was just. Uh, it, it was around about the same time Corona went large with the uh, lime shoved down the, uh, the, the the clear glass bottle. Yep. Yep. Yeah, um, we were doing, you know, we were serving, you know, uh, in the Matilda Bay pubs back in the day in Western Australia. Um, we were serving Redback in um, traditional wheat beer glasses, Weizen glasses, um, with a slice of lemon. Um, and, 
yeah, it was it was it was just any any new pub that opened in Perth at the time wanted to have Redback on tap. Um, it was yeah, it was it was quite the thing. Um, but but as I said, you know, I guess um, the, the CUB acquisition, but also uh, the economic situation that whole sort of first specialty beer era sort of wave if you like sort of died out relatively quickly uh in the early 90s um people just didn't have the money to we had um, the recession that we had to have yeah and i think i think the other thing was um oh, i think I've, I've gone on record saying this a few times i, I think that first specialty beer boom wave was um was more image-led than than substance or people actually there was no beer geeks really Buying into that at the time, um, it was very much a, it was very much a, a, an image style '80s sort of thing, which is why when the pressure came on prices uh, on the economy, um, those people moved on. It, yeah, and it, 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 that's that adds actually another piece of the puzzle that I've looked at, where it, it, the, the hops when American style pale ales came out in the early two thousands, uh, or they landed here those beers were distinctly different from anything that people had tried before because it was essentially a new style of beer and then also something that everyone, regardless of palate, was able to identify the tastes of it. Um, They weren't quite as subtle as some of the traditional styles and that created an excitement of the new as well as, as you say, the style, the the, the fashionability of it. Is, Is that a fair enough... Uh, yeah, I, th- I think I think one of the things that um, you know, I, I think one of the things that uh, the likes of Little Creatures guys did, and those you know American style pale ales, a very hoppy, um, hop forward, high bitterness beers, did was um, it it really developed a flavour centric um, challenge, if you like, you know, um, which 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 drove I think that sort of that uh, beer geek almost. Uh, aspect it was quite challenging um but people who were willing to take take the take the jump and you know sort of almost earned their stripes um drinking beers of that of that character um i, I think therefore you know that sort of it kept quite a few of these sort of more image-led uh, consumers away and people who were into flavor actually were the ones that jumped on board early um and i think at the time other movements around coffee and bread and all those sorts of things were also emerging. So I think there was more of a flavour-based approach to the second wave of, of craft beer, if you like. Moving forward, to, so around about 2002, you were saying that CUB saw what was happening with the, the James Squire range, Little Creatures had launched, and CUB started to um, take a little bit more interest in it. But it's fair to say that it, it was a little bit like watching an overladen plane trying to take off. It kept skipping, but never actually going airborne with brands like Matilda Bay. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, no. Well, I think um, well, what happened was, um, and and I was in a national marketing role at the time down there, um, and basically uh, they said, "Oh, look, you know, there's something going on in this space. We don't really know anything about it. You were in WA when we bought Matilda Bay, so you you must know a bit about this specialty beer thing. Um, what should we be doing?" Um, so at the time, so I, I sort of said, oh, okay, I'll go away and put together a strategy. I already probably had one written sitting on the bottom drawer. <laughs> but um, but, uh, but it was, you know, um, it was pretty obvious, you know, obviously the Matilda Bay brands had been sitting on the shelf gathering dust pretty much um, since since the early to mid-90s. Um, 
and the masthead business um, was ticking along um, after Brad had left, but it was sort of really had no real home. Um, and I think at the time, actually, I think the developers there were actually looking at moving the brewery out of there. They wanted to put more retail space in there. So, so its future was a, was under a cloud. Um, so I went back to them and said, look, you know, I think I think you need to launch relaunch Matilda Bay um, as Australia's original specialty brewer, which it was, well, of, of, of national note, I guess, um, and, uh, and roll the masthead brand portfolio and the, and the existing Matilda Bay portfolio, and what was left of it, uh, into one portfolio. And I would need, I'll need a brewery. Um, a small-scale brewery that we can actually play around with um, and develop some stuff and uh, get some scale. Um, and I'll need a sales team that's separate from the bigger sales team so we can actually get out there and sell this in a different way um, because the broader sales force won't be able to get their head around it. Um, so I want a separate team pretty much that operates outside of the CUB banner. Um, and and I pull, and they went, yep, okay. Um, to my surprise, I thought they might have just gone, well, no, we're not going to do that. That's 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 too hard. But but my, my rationale was that um, small things are very hard to nurture inside a big business. And um, when they do be get, when they do get successful, uh, middle management tends to decide that they want to take ownership of it. Um, so uh, so we set up a separate team, um, and that's where I brought Brad back in uh, as the head brewer. Um, and I brought Roscoe in as this head, to head the sales team up. I, I'd worked with Ross in Brisbane when I was back there, uh, and he'd worked in marketing for me as well uh, over the years. So um, I brought him in as the sales guy. Um, Brad as the head brewer um, recruited a bunch of sale, internal salespeople from around the from around the place. Um, reconfigured the portfolio, so we had Redback, Dog Bolter, Bees Knees, Bohemian Pilsner. I think was the was the initial lineup. Um, and uh, rolled that out, and and within 18 months of doing that, we'd we'd actually taken the the lead in the category off um, squires and, and over the top of real creatures as well. So we did get momentum very quickly, um, and we had some real focus um, back then. Um, Brad had tidied up the beers. Um, Redback was um, had sort of been moved into being brewed in a sort of uh, vertical cylinder conical vessel, and um, we went back and said, no, you've got to put it in a horizontal fermenter, uh, improve the esters overnight, um, got it back to where it should be. Um, yeah, repackaged the whole thing, sort of made it all look family again, got it out there, and, um, yeah, it, it, so it went quite well for a while. But, um, you know, as, as we thought, as it got successful, um, middle management tend to want to put their fingerprints on it, um, so they started to meddle and... Um, Sort of Brad Ross and I. That's where Brad Ross and I sat over to one side. And said, "Well, we've just done this for Fosters. We should be doing this for ourselves because this is going to get ugly hanging around here." Cause- <laughs> and, and, and that was a period that I was talking to, and I sort of said the the, the the sputtering takeoff because it it was a very strong brand at one point, and it, it did have national coverage. And it, in fact, the early days when I started the beer mat business, which would have been about 2003, 2004, or the good beer lunches yep. as it was then. Yep. Um, by that stage, I think you'd had, uh, um, we, we used Dog Bolter as one of the regular beers that we used. Um, Redback uh, was a beer, I think, by that stage. Um, Rooftop Red had come out, and we were yep. using that for yep. a, a number of tastings as well. But then, just as we started, just as I started that business, some of those beers were incredibly hard to, to find again. 
Yeah, probably by 2005. Um, yeah, it was probably it was probably a few years it was on it was on a bit of a roll. But by 2005, um, there was yeah there was you know the revolving the revolving door at CUB is it was it was you know the the, the wags used to say back in this day, back in the day at CUB it was a great reorganisation to work for. Um, <laughs> you, know, it was, you know, every every eighteen months you'd play musical chairs and. Um, you know, um, so so yeah, I think um, we went through one of those reorganisations and ended up with um, you know sales guys trying to trying to sell um, specialty beer and just didn't work. So um, we sort of strengthened our resolve and said, you know, we got to go and do our own thing. So that's sort of that's sort of when then we started talking about um, the, the, the the thing that eventually became Stone and Wood. So before we move on to that, you, you have talked about some of the, the, the people that you've learned from um, and it, it's very clear who you learned from in the early days of uh, Matilda Bay, but who at CUB during your extended stint there would you count as somebody who, uh, who, who, who you bled for knowledge? Um, oh, lots and lots of people. Um, I probably learnt more, I learnt more about other people's mistakes than anything um, there, so... <laughs> I didn't really have a mentor as such. I think we just sat back and watched, you know, um, CB was a great business at doing business with itself. Um, and that, <laughs> you know, um, I think there wasn't any one individual, probably one individual that actually, um, a very grounded, focused sort of guy is actually Trevor O'Hoy, who is now actually on it, has been on our board for a number of years. I was going to ask you uh, um, yeah, about that, yeah. Yeah. So Trevor, and Trevor was actually the one who pulled me in and said, you know, we need to do something in this space because, um, no one at no one in CUB knows how to get their head around it, and he's quite a humble sort of grounded guy, Trevor. And um, it, it would have taken a lot of other people um, a lot of time to actually come to that conclusion and actually accept that, that there was no one in there that did know how to approach it. Um, whereas Trevor would have accepted it pretty quickly um, and gone, "No, look, no, um, yeah, we don't know how to play in this space. You do, go for it." Um, so a lot of faith and trust in us, but um, yeah, financially very sound guy, um, but very grounded for the for the for you know thirty odd years in, that he'd been in the in the business. Uh, so yeah, he he was probably he was probably a bit of a a bit of a mentor. Um, so but yeah, mostly mostly learning from the you know the, the all the bad things about corporate culture. Um, Doing business with yourself, um, you know, people hanging people out to dry, and all sort of crap that goes on. Uh, the politics of the politics of big business. So um, our resolve when we set up Stone and Wood was very much to make sure we didn't commit any of those sins and build a business culture that, you know, was as a far cry from all of that. So I guess it taught us a great lot, a lot of things about what not to do in business. So this takes us to the the, the Stone and Wood period. You mentioned before that uh, when Trevor asked you to take a look at craft beer or what is now called craft beer, you had a beer plan probably in your bottom drawer. How different was the plan? You know, were you able to dust that off or did you take what you'd learned from the Matilda Bay um, experiment and apply that to Stone and Wood? Uh, certainly, certainly a lot of learnings we got out of the... Um Matilda Bay piece, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it was pretty much a, a case of us talking for about two years about, you know, maybe we should go and do this for ourselves. And um, 
Yeah, it was very much a we wanted we saw the market moving um, further and further towards that space with consumers sort of looking for much more flavour and authentic brands, etc. And um, we knew we wanted to build a brand that had some regional provenance and and be a more regional brand. Um, I, I guess the one thing that we did with Stone and Wood was was focus on building a regional beer brand and not a craft beer brand. Um, although the craft market has been probably good to us and has helped get us up and running, um, the real business plan behind it all was pretty much um, was was establish a regional brand because um, we think we saw that long term that's 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 where the the gap in the market is um, is is to build something with real strong regional presence. Uh, so so yeah, eventually we after two years we decided we. We'd actually stop talking about it and do it, um, or stop talking about it and never mention it again. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was in 2006. So uh, April Fool's Day 2006, um, that the three of us agreed that um, we, we, we'd start planning what what became Stone and Wood. And then it was 2008 that that you uh, launched Stone and Wood, if because it was 10 years last year. Yeah. Yep, yep. November two thousand and eight. So yeah, there was there was a lot of serious planning went in between April two thousand six and um, and the eventual launch in two thousand eight. Yep, yep. Lots of lots of work done. Hours late hours at night. Um, we were we were sort of scattered around a bit by then. So it was you know Skype calls after after the kids were in bed, <laughs> uh, planning stuff etc. And and then um, I resigned from Fosters at the end of two thousand and six. Um, and Brad and Ross stayed on. Um, I had a lot of, you know, sort of development applications and brand stuff to, to, to try and do. So um, that's when I that's when I moved from Fosters to Dig Marketing Group uh, in Melbourne uh, and became a partner in that business. It's a fairly full-on job to, to step out of uh, CUB and go into partner of a, of a marketing group while also developing your own craft beer brand. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, um, obviously the business wasn't uh, the, the stone and wood wasn't earning anything, so we couldn't draw. I couldn't draw a wage from that, so it was, you know, I needed something else that um, was outside of Foster's to be able to put some food on the table. Um, and and the marketing business, um, I think, really helped me, uh, you know, get my head around small business, uh, as well as also um, we looked after a lot of uh, food and wine businesses and um yeah got a lot of exposure to wine probably the, the gap in the middle that i haven't mentioned is the last 12 months i was at fosters i actually spent in the wine side of the business after after they bought south corp um i jumped in i jumped purposefully knowing that i was going to jump ship at some point um moved into the wine side of the business and got exposed to sort of wine marketing and um wine production and and yeah the you know, there was a massive task there where they ended up with 65 brands after merging Beringer Blass and um, South Corp, um, and that was a that was a big learning in terms of how you actually look at a portfolio that big and try and work out what you actually do with them all. It's about two and a half thousand SKUs, I think, or something. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was that was a real immersion. Um, but yeah, no, back into mark big marketing. Yeah, that was that was um, that was. It was another sort of MBA, I guess, in terms of small business, um, and yeah, it helped me. It helped. It helped take some pressure off when uh, we eventually, and Brad and Ross eventually, Fosters, um, 
there was there was only two and a half people drawing the wage as opposed to all three of us trying to draw a wage when we started it. So um, I was sort of commuting back and forth from Melbourne to Byron. Um, and, you know, once we up and running, I, eventually I was sort of out there selling beer in Melbourne um, as well as doing the dig marketing thing plus um, jumping on the phone, chasing money from customers <laughs> and doing the, doing the commercials and marketing stuff uh, as well for Stone and Wood. So, yeah. Yeah, I had a number of hats at that point. I, I think we could probably do an entire episode just on Stone and Wood and the, 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 the last 10 years of Stone and Wood. Um, so I, and given that we're already 50 minutes in here, I'd, yep. w- what I might do is uh, just ask you what the from that entire career and all of the you know, MBAs that you've you've had at different uh, acquired at different. Uh, phases through experience. What are some of the key learnings that you took from those various uh, career iterations and applied to Stone and Wood? I guess um, common sense, um, authenticity, uh, being true to yourself, um, being very clear in terms of what you're trying to achieve and and stay very focused and disciplined on your strategy um, and be patient and take a long time in uh, delivering on the plan that you've written for yourself um, and and slowly but surely you know it, it takes a long time to build a beer brand um, it's not something that happens overnight um, I, I believe it's probably not even until a beer brand is seven years old that it actually starts to get a true sense of being a brand up until then it's still really just a label um, so so being being very focused um, being very disciplined uh, and pragmatic at the same time. I think they're probably the key things. What What was it about, or was it anything that came from your previous career that when you launched Stone and Wood, you know, that, so that was six years, seven years into the, um, the, 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 the real craft beer renaissance post Little Creatures when hops were the thing. Um, it was before we started seeing some of the, 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 the hyper- um, experimental exper- experimentalism that we're seeing now but at that time everyone launched with an American Pale Ale um, and you guys eschewed that and created arguably a whole new style of beer although we, we, we won't go into that um, but you, 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 you went a very different way from the market when you launched Pacific Ale was that something that you learned from your experience with other breweries or was that just an instinctive uh, feeling about the nature of beer itself? Um, yeah, a number of things there, probably a bit instinctive, but, but um, one thing we were determined to do was not do what everyone else was doing in craft beer. Um, as I said before, you know, um, we, we actually set out to build a regional beer, regional brewery uh, and a regional brand. So, um, Although craft, you know, the, 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 the typical craft model roll it out, you know, American Pale Ale, uh, you might have had a Stout, a Porter, a, you know, all the, all the traditional styles. Um, we decided not to go down that path, but to actually create beers that, you know, were right for our marketplace here and right for the occasion, beer drinking occasions up here, uh, and stay true to that. Um so, so our portfolio, you know, obviously initially was was what draft ale on tap, and um, and the first beer we put in bottle was our lager, which is now Green Coast Lager. Um, you know, um, I, I, 
and that and that was about you know we sort of had this view that um we saw what we saw what was happening in what happened in wine and if you look at wine between the 70s and sort of the sort of 10 years ago or so in the wine industry was that the wine industry fell in love with parkerization that was you know parker the, mm-hmm. uh, right. the, uh, the wine critic yep. yep um who who loved big bold massive shirazes and would score them accordingly um so that was sort of almost like an in product endorsement. So it sort of led, uh, just like in craft beer, there's been this sort of hop race. Um, I think big gutsy Shirazes were, were, were on a similar path. So the wine industry was out there trying to build the, you know, make the biggest gutsiest Shirazes they could. Um, but over time, uh, the drinker has swung back, the, the pendulum has swung back the other way. Um, so the reaction to that movement was actually towards more sort of refined, elegant styles of wine. Um, and, you know, we see now and have seen for a while things like Pinot and um, Rosé uh, and those sorts of things growing quite strongly. Um, and and we sort of looked at that sort of hop race that was happening in, in craft beer and thought, well, there's no point chasing that. Everyone else is. Um, let, let's Let's just head back. Let's just head towards a part of the market where they will probably end up in years to come um, and we'll just go there to start with. Um, so that was, that was, a, that was our plan was, you know, at the end of the day, once consumers have been on this flavor uh, junkie journey, they'll, they'll probably end up looking for more refinement and not only that, but there'll be a whole army of drinkers coming across from mainstream beer that were never going to go on that flavor, massive flavor hike, hike journey anyway, but are, are going to graduate into more, you know, flavor some more, authentic styles of beer um so that's so that's sort of um that's why we headed down the path of you know a, a light summery style beer um which became pacific ale and that was really more about um making a beer for the occasion of you know drinking in while you're in Byron, while you come out of the surf and you go into the beer garden and have a beer that's you know thirst quenching and refreshing but different um distinct distinctly different enough to get the interest of um, the flavour junkie, but also um, approachable and flavoursome enough for the drinker who was sort of graduating away from mainstream beer. Having that insight and being right about the timing of executing that insight are, are two different things. Though. How much has luck played in you know, the, the, the right beer at the right time? A lot, I think. You know, um, we in those in those nearly two years that we were, or two and a bit years, we were messing around um, getting ready to launch Stone and Wood. One, of the, our initial business plan was actually to have a, a, a brew pub in town in Byron, um, a small little bar and brewery, um, build that up and build a brand from that, and then go to the second phase, which was a manufacturing sort of focused brewery. But we couldn't find the location. We had a number of um, locations identified and things fell over uh, and it got to a point where we had to move to phase two basically because we could see the market moving so um so it was about timing um we wanted to get in before there was a gold rush so to speak um so um i think we got in at a time where we were where we were uh it wasn't the market wasn't as cluttered we had some clear air to be able to build uh, a brand and particularly in this part of the world uh and and then and then run hard to get probably scale um which is what we did for probably the first first four or five years 
Now, as I said, I could easily uh, disappear down the path of discussing all things uh, Pacific Hale and Stone and Wood, but I'll, I'll bring it back to talk about the, the way you've developed the business um, and bring it back to your stepping back from uh, a management role in uh, Fermentum, uh, which is the, the group of companies that Stonewood's part of. How how I, I, I've watched um, over the last few years as uh, you, Brad, and Jamie have gone from uh, you, Brad, and Ross have gone from very hands on, um, you know, sales, brewing, and marketing roles to to bring in people under you and manage the process of growing a brand while inculcating a, a, a culture. How how much of that was preordained, and how much of it was, or how much of it was you decided that that's how you had to develop the business? It's 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 certainly very carefully planned. Um, I think we sat back a number of years ago and went, you know, this business. If if we want this business to be around in 150 years, um, the three of us aren't going to be around for 150 years. Um, we need to make sure the culture inside the business can carry it on, but also, you know, looking around the team, um, is there people in the team at that point ready to grow into leadership roles? Um, there probably wasn't. There were there were some great, enthusiastic, um, highly committed people uh, in sort of junior leadership roles in the business that were that were growing their knowledge of the industry really quickly, growing their knowledge of uh, what we do and how to manage people very quickly, but probably not to a point where they weren't at a point where they could actually step into a more senior role. So there was a gap between ourselves and those and that group. Um, and we sort of looked at it and went, well, you know, essentially uh, the business is family owned, um, you know, 80% of it's still family owned across four families. And when you include Tom, our silent partner, but um, none of us at that point had kids that were, you know, second generation, next generation coming through. Um, so we really said, well, you know, we need to start building some um, a leadership group that we can hand the reins over to. Um, to fill that void until you know if our if our kids are ever wanting to jump in they could um, but that's that's a long way down the track so it's a very deliberate step to um, to bring in some industry experienced people uh, into the business that could that could take on those leadership roles. Brad had a, a car accident a couple of years ago and some uh, ongoing complications following that. Did that change the way that you went about um, doing it, knowing that? 60 was one of the uh, promises you'd made to yourself? Yeah. Um, yeah, look, no, the, the, the journey had started before that. Um, so so it, it, it helped us deal with that. And and um, Ross also had a bit of a heart scare a little while, a little, little health scare a little while ago. Um, had a couple of stents put in. So, um, so yeah, I, I think I think those sort of things, um, you know, raised our eyebrows. Raised our eyes to the fact that yeah we we need to we need to start putting some people in place to run the business because yeah you know the hit by the bus uh, theory um you know can be real so um so yeah it, it's really you know and and I think another piece of advice I got many years ago was when you build a business is that um you have to get to a point where you you no longer think about what you could do for the business but it's what the business can do for you you know um so you have to think you have to think long and hard about you know what you want out of the business uh, by owning that business is something it, it it should be delivering you something um and if that is sort of 
you know, more lifestyle and um, opportunity to reap in the benefits of what you've sowed, then um, so be it. But that's sort of, yeah, so so I think, you know, we all sort of took the view that, you know, we put everything on the line to start this business and we've built it up over the last 10 years, but um, it's not something we can continue to be uh, hands-on involved with. Um, it, need, it needs to sort of have its own life. So I guess that brings us to you will be uh, stepping back as of December this year. What's next for Jamie Cook? Uh, well, I mean, stepping back, uh, yeah, I'll certainly be stepping to a role of sort of chair of the board, but um, which, you know, which which is nowhere near hands-on, um, but I'll be sort of hanging around, um, mentoring a few of the junior people in the business. Um, I like, get a kick out of doing that. Um and yeah, rolling down the hill every now and then, and annoying a few people in the brewery or in the office is always a bit of fun. But um, <laughs> but uh, no, um, certainly a bit more time with my family. Um, my two grown-up sons are, you know, um, I want to spend some more time with them, nurturing and helping them um, with things they're up to in their lives, and um, spend some time with Anne. Um, you know, the, I've put a lot of time and effort into this business, and probably, you know, probably neglected the three of them to some extent. So it's time to um, pay back the pay back the tolerance they've had for me over the last ten or twelve years. So, um, so looking forward to doing that and getting probably uh, on the on the motorbike more out, doing some more rides and uh, and a bit of travel. Certainly, spend a lot more time in the northern hemisphere um, in our winter over the next couple of years is the plan. There is so much focus on work-life balance these days, and also things like uh, mental health and you know, sort of taking care of yourself. How possible is that when you're fully committed to something like Stone and Wood that is a very, very demanding? Uh, uh, can you still say mistress? But it, you know, it's a very, very. Um, it, it takes a lot of your attention, uh, no matter what your intentions are to to the other elements of your life. A really good question. Um, one of the things we we jumped on very early in the piece with Stone and Wood was that um, work-life balance um, is a bit of a furphy. Um, uh, it's actually work-life blend. Um, if you're if you're if you love what you do um, and you love the work that you do, um, it's not it's not really work-life balance. It's actually work-life blend because. Um, what you do at work is as much a natural part of your life um, as the rest of it is when you do whatever you do outside your work is not a part or separate from your life. It's actually, you know, it is a, a solid part of it. Um, so, so if you, if you're happy enough to fall into a situation where you really love what you do and you're passionate about it, it, it it's just, it's a natural part of your life. Um, you, you have to try and you have to try and sort of, manage the aspect where it doesn't become all absorbing to the detriment of your family i think that's you know that's just one of those challenges that you have in life as opposed to you know working working in a job that you know you're just trying to get to the top of something or whatever um in a in a career that uh, you don't really like but it's paying well or whatever um yeah i think that's a that's a work that's a different work-life balance you've got to try and manage <laughs> But you'll still be involved because there's no um, shaking things like your current role with the board of the Independent Brewers Association. Yeah, no, there's still a, bit, still a fair bit of work to do there, um, and um, yeah, no. So we've, I'm certainly still committed to that for a while. Um, yeah, yeah, we've we've put a lot of work in in the last eight months to get it to get some real momentum going. So um, so looking forward to seeing that 
uh, roll out over the next little while. Certainly a lot going on there. And I guess the, the, the one question I'll ask before, there's so much more that we could cover, but the one last question I'll ask is one that we uh, regularly ask. And it, it sounds like you've learned a lot from both your mistakes and the mistakes you've watched other people make. But is there any one thing that if you could go back and change it, uh, you, that would be the one thing that would have made a whole lot of other things easier? Whew. Uh, not really. I guess, I guess, um, you sort of, no regrets, I guess. I, I, I can't think of anything that really jumps out at me. Um, would you have called draft out uh, something different? <laughs> no, I, I still, I, I still think, I still think the word Pacific is very powerful and, uh, and it's still doing a bloody good job for us. That brand's still growing. That still brand's growing quite strongly. Despite, but not uh, launching other, it as draft out, calling it as something to, to, to begin with. Oh right. Um, oh look, no. I think you know, um, you know, and, and you do those things at the time. You know, we had very good reasons why we called it draft ale and why we called the lager pale lager. Um, and you know, um, I think the lessons we learned along the way there were the pale lager one was probably a, a more interesting story. Um, the amount of times we stood at beer festivals um, pouring pale lager and people would come up and ask for a pale ale, and we said, "Oh, you mean the pale <laughs> lager? Yeah, yeah, the pale ale." Um, <laughs> We, we underestimated how strongly the words pale and ale were associated with beer, and no matter how big of lettering you put on the word lager, they still <laughs> called it an ale. <laughs> so, so we dropped. I think we dropped pale off that um, after after a year and a half or so of being frustrated by that. But, um, so you know, the simplicity. You know, at the time it was about building the stone and wood brand, and and the and the beers underneath were very much just descriptors, if you like, um, until we started down with Pacific Ale and starting to go down that brand approach. Um, so, yeah, no, 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 I don't think there's anything really, I can't, I can't think of one, one big thing. Wonderful. Well, uh, Jamie Cook, congratulations on not only everything you've achieved at Stone and Wood, but everything that you've uh, achieved over a career in beer. And uh, thank you for sharing just a little bit of that with us over the last hour on uh, Beer as a Conversation. Oh, well, th- thanks, Matt. And look, thank you and, uh, and the Brews News team um, for, you know, the, the great work you guys put in day in, day out to promoting uh, promoting beer and, and developing the culture around beer and you obviously outside of your brews new stuff with beer mat etc um you know i think i think um i'm just so excited for the future of beer in australia you know um you see independent beer now has moved out of that sort of imagery of being urban sort of hipster um plaything to you know it, it's it's fully being embraced by such a broad demographic um you go out to regional Australia and you're seeing breweries and bars popping up, pouring, you know, all sorts of great independent beer. I mean, that's that's a sign that it's not a, it's not an urban hipster thing. Uh, that's 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 been and gone. Um, it's it's certainly fully entrenched. I'm, I'm jumping on a plane heading to heading to Orange soon um, for a meeting down there with the New South Wales government, and there's seven breweries are going to be at this meeting along with some distillers and stuff. So you know, in in Orange, there's there's, there's seven breweries, you know, within within sort of a, a diameter of that town. It's just amazing. It's just amazing to think about how how far it's gone and could go. I, I came back from Kingaroy last night, where we were pouring uh, stone and wood um, at the Bacon Festival up there, and uh, I think we did. We thought we had enough for the weekend. We did six kegs of uh, the the Green Coast Lager on on Saturday. <laughs> 
and uh, I think we did wow. ten kegs yeah. overall. So, and that that's Kingaroy, and uh, you know, very much country Queensland, and uh, yeah, and so it's not just uh, the, the exciting things that the industry's doing, but a lot of that is being uh, done by stone and wood. So, uh, congratulations for all you've done to contribute to that. No worries. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. And that was Jamie Cook. And we would like to thank our sponsors, including Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging, for making this show possible. Even if you have an established label supplier, have a chat with Rallings Labels Stickers and Packaging and see how their flexibility can make things easier for your brewery. Call Rallings on 1300 852 235. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out by sponsoring the show, either a one-off or monthly donation, just to cover the costs of us producing it. You can review us on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service and help other people to find the show. Or you can email us at producer at brewsnews.com.au to share your thoughts. All correspondents will receive a Brews News bottle opener and go into the draw to win a mixed six-pack. Thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, who sponsor our Letter of the Week. 